said that uh, for verse 20 alone, he could find over 400 possible interpretations that have been given by past commentators. Um, so we're not going to dwell on verse 20, uh, <laughs> and we are going to pray uh, that God will help us to, to understand uh, what's written here. So let's pray together. Father, we always need your help in the Spirit if we're going to hear your word. Uh, even the bits that are really clear and easy to understand don't penetrate our hearts and minds unless, uh, unless you speak them to us by the Spirit. Um, and this bit isn't easy to understand, so we just ask for your help. Please would you be with us, and please would you give us grace, and please would you change us, Lord. Please would we go away from here more confident in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. So, <coughs> this is the third, the third in our series uh, in Galatians. Um, I could do eight or nine in Galatians, but I've got four, so uh, you're getting the overview rather than the detailed look, if that's all right. Um, let me just uh, recap tell us where we've got to so far. Uh, we've seen that Paul has written this angry letter to the Galatians. He really is angry, and at, at, at points he almost threatens physical violence against people uh, because he's so cross. Um, and he's angry because he wants the Galatian Christians, uh, who are in churches which he planted, which he set up, he wants them to get the gospel right, to get the good news right. And he sees that they are threatened by new teachers who have come in with a different message, have started to teach a different message, and the Galatian Christians have been taken in. Um, and they started to move away from them initially to follow these new teachers. And Paul is desperate about that because he knows that everything depends on getting this good news right. Everything depends on it. And we saw it at the end of the bit that uh, John just read to us, Paul saying in, in anguish, I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. He's saying, if you don't turn back from this path you set out on, if you carry on following the message that these new teachers are bringing, then all of your Christian faith will have been for nothing. It will be a waste. So this, this really matters. Which is interesting because um, uh, as, as Colin was reminding us this morning, if you were there this morning, the new teachers in Galatia weren't bringing a hugely different message. They, were, they weren't saying, stop worshipping Jesus or stop trusting Jesus. But they were saying, trust Jesus and also keep the law. Keep the law of Moses. That's the next step. That's the thing to do after you've trusted Jesus. And we saw uh, last week that Paul says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. We saw last week that one big question that the Gospel answers is, how do I get to be righteous? How do I get to be right, innocent, clean before God, and therefore able to be in a relationship with Him? How do I get to be righteous? And Paul said, the law is not involved in that in any way, because you only get to be righteous by completely trusting Jesus. His death and resurrection has done it all. There's nothing that you can contribute and nothing that you need to contribute. You just have to trust Him. That was the answer to our first big question. 
Uh, and now we're, we're moving on to the second big question, which the Gospel answers and which uh, Paul wants uh, the Galatians to think about carefully. And it's this, how can I be sure that I belong to God's family? How can I actually be sure that I belong to God's family? Um, we live in a very kind of individualistic culture. So when we think about me and God, we do tend to think of it like that. It's just me and God. And if there are any other people involved, they're just kind of incidentally involved. So when we think about righteousness, we think, how do I get righteous with God? And because we're, we're living in an individualistic world. And so very often, in fact, um, when we do evangelism, we say to people, become a Christian, put your faith in Jesus. And then only after they've done that do we say, oh, well, you might like to think about getting involved in the church and joining the church because you find that helpful. Um, the first century world is really different. Um, actually, the question of how I belong to God's family, how I get into uh, the right relationship with God's people on earth, is actually all tied up with the question of righteousness. You can't pull them apart the way we sometimes would and, and the way, frankly, I have done in order to make this sermon series work. So this is me putting them back together again, okay? Um, because one of the things that you have to do, which everybody knew you had to do in the first century if you want to be righteous, is you have to be in the right group. You have to be in the, in the group which is righteous. And that's the way it works. If you wanted to be um, in favour with the goddess Isis, you have to be in the Isis group. You had to have gone through the initiatory rites and you know, then she liked you. And that was great, except that she was an island and didn't exist and so it was actually useless. But never mind, it was a good social group, um, apparently, except that if you revealed the initiatory rites, then she would So, kind of secretive. Um, so, this is a really big question actually. Um, it's not, I think, the way it often is for us, where we often think, if I've got my relationship with God sorted, human community is a kind of optional extra. It's kind of nice, but hey, I can be a Christian by myself if needs be. That just wasn't the way mindset worked. It's not the way Paul's mindset works either. But there was a pretty obvious answer to that question. How do I, how can I be sure that I belong to God's family? A uh, pretty obvious answer was floating around in the first century. And it was the answer that the new teachers basically came uh, and gave as well. And it was this, uh, you can be sure that you're in God's family if you're a Jew who keeps the law. Um, if you're descended from Abraham, the uh, progenitor of the Jewish race, and if you keep the law. Uh, that was how you were in God's family, because that was God's chosen people. And uh, you read the Old Testament, you can see how you might get an impression. In fact, that's pretty clearly what the Old Testament says. But Paul says, that is not the answer to the question. This is how you can be sure that you're in God's family. Do you have faith in Jesus? If you do, you're in. And that's all there is to it. So you see, two pretty different answers. Paul's uh, argument for his position is this. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. That is why faith in Jesus is all you need. So he's not kind of putting Abraham out of the picture. He's not getting rid of Abraham. He's saying, actually, the real seed of Abraham is Jesus. Well, uh, that's uh, going to need some unpacking, because it's a pretty obscure line of argument for us, I guess. 
And, and uh, first of all, we need, really need to understand our Old Testament. So, uh, here's a timeline of the Old Testament. Uh, I point you to this note. This is not even remotely to scale. Um, this is going to sound be a bit like a lecture for a while. I'm going to use my pointy pen. It's very exciting. Um, so let me just uh, highlight a few points for you in the history of Israel. Uh, here is uh, God's call to Abraham. You can read that in Genesis 12. We heard about it in a sermon series not that long ago. God calls Abraham uh, out of his city and his country, uh, away from the rest of his family, and says, I'm going to make you a great nation. Uh, Genesis 17 is quite important. You see uh, God making a covenant with Abraham and making a promise to him that his offspring will be blessed and will inherit the land. Uh, well, that's great. We skip forward a little while, uh, an indeterminate number of years, um, and Abraham's descendants uh, go down into Egypt. They go because of uh, famine, and they go, if, if you're familiar with the Joseph story, that's, that's what's going on there. Uh, they go down into Egypt, and after a few generations, they become slaves. They're enslaved in Egypt. By the way, I have to say, I realise most of you probably know this by heart, but one day, it's good for us to remind us. After a while in Egypt, that's part of the gap in one, uh, God rescues his people through Moses. Uh, they cross through the Red Sea, miraculous deliverance. Uh, and then they get to Sinai, where they're given the law. Uh, Exodus 20, and you can read about that. And uh, they carry on from Sinai, and after a 40 year detour provoked by unbelief, um, they, in, in the book of Joshua, uh, they settle in the land. And uh, one or two Samuels, the story of them taking the land. Um, and then some time passes around about here, they get some kings. Uh, there are some good kings, some bad kings, more bad kings. And at this stage, because of their disobedience, God sends the people into exile. And uh, they're all carted off wholesale to Babylon. And only the forest left behind on the land. Um, and uh, it's all looking pretty bad. The temple is burned down, and God seems to have abandoned his people, but promises that them that they'll be restored to the land. And I just hear they get back from exile, and that's great, but they don't seem to have promised blessings. The blessings that God promised them don't seem to have completely materialised. Um, and so they wait for a while, and there's no prophetic word for a long time, uh, and then Jesus comes. Right? That's uh, not the Old Testament anymore, just in case you were wondering how that worked. So, uh, so we've, we've got that sort of outline in our minds. That's what's going on. And uh, there are a couple of big points that Paul wants to make of. Firstly, he wants to point out, in between this point where God calls Abraham and promises, makes promises to him, and this point where God gives the law through Moses, there's a gap of 430 years. That's important. Uh, you can read about it in verse 17 of chapter 3. What I mean is this, he says, the law introduced 430 years later, i.e. after the promise to Abraham, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and do away with the promise. So that's important. He says, the fact that there's this big gap here indicates that it is not the case that the law that was given through Moses replaced the promise. Okay? Good. Um, and the other big important thing he wants to say is that the promise was actually fulfilled, the promise that was given to Abraham was actually fulfilled in Jesus, when Jesus came. Uh, and you see that in verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. The scripture does not say to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is 
Christ. Jesus uh, is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. And therefore, that promise, which is given here and fulfilled over here, cannot have anything to do with the law. It cannot, because this 430 year gap, and because actually the fulfillment of the promise happens here, not through any law giving or keeping. Right? That's the lecture bit vaguely over. Don't get to use my pen anymore. It's sad. <laughs> the reason um, Paul wants us to get this view of the Old Testament really clear in our minds is because as far as he's concerned, it makes all the difference between two completely different ways of relating to God. Two completely different ways of relating to God. The, the first one, and this is what Paul wants to talk about, starts with God's grace. God's grace. And in his grace, in his undeserved favour and love, God gives a promise to Abraham. Uh, end of verse 18. God, in his grace, gave it the inheritance to Abraham through a promise. Now, the correct human response to a promise is faith. If I promise to give you something with no conditions attached whatsoever, there's nothing you can do apart from trust me that I actually will give it to you. You could mug me and try to get it off me, I suppose, but that doesn't work with God. Fact. <laughs> <laughs> so, Paul sees a chain here from God's grace, which issues in a promise, which is received on the human side by faith and which leads to the inheritance being given, right? He sees that. That's the way it works. But he says, if on the other hand it was by the law, if it was by the law, then you'd get this scheme in mind. No grace, I put that in brackets at the beginning, because it's not mentioned in the passage, but it's basically the implication. A law is given. Now the correct human response to a law is to try to keep the whole law. Yeah. And then you would get the inheritance if you kept the whole law. And Paul is clear, that is not grace. That's not grace, that's earning it. It's not free favour. But, he says, the inheritance was promised to Abraham and his seed to be received by faith, with no mention of the law, and the law came in 430 years later. Now, if um, the windows of your mind's eye beginning to sort of glaze over and thinking, what on earth is this all about? Um, it will um, it will make sense in a minute. I promise. But for now, just hold this in your mind. Paul's argument in these uh, verses from sort of chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 15 downwards is this. There it is in verse 15. Let me take an example from everyday life. Well, it's not everyday life for us, but okay, we can imagine that it was. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. So what he's saying is that if I make an agreement with you to give you something, and I don't attach any conditions to it, I just say, at the right time, I'm going to give you this, I promise. Let's say we write up a legally binding contract that I'm going to give you this. I cannot then, say, a couple of weeks later, swing by and say, Actually, I've decided that I'm only going to give it to you if you do this, if you come and clean my house every day for a week. And now, as it happens, I could do that. I could do that. 
But that's because I'm a fickle, simple human being who can change his mind at will. Now, if it was a legally binding contract, then I guess I can. But Paul's relying on the character of God here. God doesn't come along and just change the agreement halfway through. So, going back to our Old Testament history, God didn't say to Abraham, I promise an inheritance to your seed, I promise that your descendants will be blessed and will be a blessing to the whole of earth. And then, 430 years later, say, actually I've decided that I'm only going to do it if you keep the law. Make sense? I'm going to keep asking if it makes sense, because, um, yeah, I know it's weird stuff for us, because we're not first century Christians. The point that Paul here is making is that promise and law are incompatible. They're not the same thing. If something is given by a promise, it's received by faith. If something is given by a law, it's received by keeping the law. The two things are completely different. Verse 18 of chapter 3, if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. It's no longer about the promise that was given to Abraham. It's about how well Israel kept the law after it was given. So they're two completely different things. And that's really important for Paul, really important, because these Christians in Galatia, in first century Galatia, are being conned into thinking that they have to have a bit of both. We can kind of trust Jesus, trust the promise, trust the, the, the seed of Abraham, as Paul calls him here. We can kind of trust Jesus and do a bit of law keeping and that way we put our bases covered with God. That way we definitely get the inheritance. And Paul says, no, they don't work like that. If you are trusting the promise, you won't trust your own law keeping. You just won't. If I promise you something unconditionally, and then say nothing else about it, and then I catch you in my house every day cleaning my house, because you say, well, I want to learn what you promised me. I say, that's not the way it works. I promised you something unconditionally. I'm actually a little insulted that you're uh, cleaning my house in order to try to earn a gift that I wanted to give you. Yes? I might also say, but you can finish up the toilet before you leave. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you're a, a first century Christian, or indeed a first century Jew, at this stage, you want to say to Paul, but Paul, if in fact that is the case, if it was always meant to be by a promise, if belonging to God's people was always a matter of trusting in Jesus, uh, whether it was a, a Jew in the Old Testament looking forward to the, to the promised seed, or whether it's me now looking back and trusting in Jesus as he's come, if that was always the way it was meant to be, then Paul, why the law? Why did God give a law at all? Now, if you've read your Old Testament through, and from beginning to end, well done to you, um, you'll have noticed that quite a lot of it is taken up by law. Particularly at the beginning, there are some, some books just full of laws. So you may well say, if you're in the first century, why the law? Why has it been given? Well, I've already seen a couple of things. Um, the law wasn't given to make you righteous. Um, that said pretty clearly uh, uh, up above that nobody is justified by keeping the law. Um, you become righteous by faith 
in Jesus, in the promised sacrifice, the one who will bear the curse, or for us now, looking backwards, the one who has borne the curse for us. And it's not to bring people into God's family. Actually, Paul has just said, that inheritance, that belonging to Abraham's family, that comes by faith in the seed of Abraham, by faith in Jesus. So what is the law for? And Paul has a, a couple of things. Basically, he says, the law kept Israel conscious of sin and looking forward to Jesus. So, uh, have a look at 3.19. What then was the purpose of the law? If the inheritance didn't depend on it, because that was received on promise, what then is the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to be the promise of birth had come. It was added because of transgressions. And then in verse 22, you get this. The scripture declares the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. So, one of the things that the law does for Israel is that it says to them, you are sinners. You are sinners. Now, actually, if we look through God's law, that it still does that to us today, because we realise that we don't in any way live up to the standards of God's us. We're sinners. But it's not only to keep Israel conscious of sin, it's also to keep them looking forward to Jesus. And at 3.24, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. Can you see how um, those two things actually go together? If God's law keeps me aware that I'm a sinner, it also keeps me looking forward to somebody who can deal with the problem of my sin. And that is Jesus. Now, um, for the Galatian Christians in the first century, uh, this was actually a really important life issue. Uh, most of the Galatian Christians were Gentiles, uh, if not all of them. So they weren't Jews. Okay? So, they feel, naturally, somewhat alienated from the Old Testament. Uh, they, don't, they don't have a blood relationship with Abraham, as the Jews do. They don't have this long history of being the chosen people of God, as the Jews do. So you can understand that um, Gentiles in Galatia, who have just become Christians, might feel quite insecure. Are we really in the family of God? Are we really? Because we, we don't have all of this stuff. Now we know that Christians uh, in the first century started reading their Old Testaments pretty avidly. So they're going through all of that stuff and they haven't got it. They haven't got the descent from Abraham. They haven't got circumcision, which is a sign of the covenant with Abraham. They haven't got the food laws and the Sabbath laws, which were designed to make it clear who was God's people and who wasn't. They haven't got any of that stuff. So I, I guess we can understand how they might be asking themselves, are we really in? And when the new teachers turn up and say, get circumcised, start keeping the law, I imagine the new speakers seem strong resistance to the idea of circumcision. Yep. <laughs> but then maybe they think, actually I really do want to belong to God's people, I really do want to be in God's family. And if these are the markets, if this is the stuff that really makes me a part of God's people, basically, if I, become a, if, I, if I can become a Jew, then that's worth doing, isn't it? That's worth doing for the part of the family of God. Even, you know, the Smith is, is 
you see, the attraction of that at all. I mean, it's a bit more difficult for us because we just we just don't read the Bible that way. You know, we start with Jesus and then go back into the Old Testament a bit more. But they didn't have a New Testament, so they just had whatever Paul had told them and the Old Testament. It's not that surprising that they found this new teaching attractive. Um, my guess is we don't find it so attractive, because um, frankly we're pretty confident that we are the people of God already, and we don't you know, have much of this insecurity. We're not a kind of fledgling religious movement just emerging from Judaism. You know, 2,000 years of Christian history have, have kind of made the problem a bit distant from us. And actually, that's, that's part of the issue that we have reading Galatians. All of these problems just seem so bizarre and so distant from us. Let me um, try to persuade you uh, that it's really important that we understand why we shouldn't get circumcised. Or why you can get circumcised if you want, but it has no religious significance whatsoever. Just in case. Uh, let me um, pick out just a few of the implications I think there are here already. Firstly, there are implications for how we read the Old Testament. Um, I know that for a lot of Christians, the Old Testament is the obscure, weird bit that doesn't seem to have anything to do with us. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but you're kind of reading through a line of prophets uh, who's uh, talking about judgment on Edom and uh, you know, the mountains of Edom being cast down, and you're thinking, I don't know where the mountains of Edom are. What has this got to do with me? Uh, anybody who had that experience or is that just me? Well, if you have that experience, then actually you are in quite a similar place to the Galatians, because they're doing the same thing. They're in the Old Testament and thinking, I don't understand what this has got to do with me. Now, their reaction to that is to think, if I became a Jew, then this would be my history as well. Then this would be relevant to me. Then the laws would speak directly to me and I would know exactly what I needed to do. Um, but Paul's answer, and I think our answer needs to be, actually, we read the Old Testament as really relevant to us because we read the Old Testament as a book that is about Jesus. The Old Testament is the story of Israel waiting for Jesus and therefore it's the story of the world waiting for Jesus. And if we get that into our heads, then that will make sense of the Old Testament for us. I mean, why? What, what is that judgment on the mountains of Eden all about? It's actually about God keeping his promised people alive until the Saviour comes. It's about God maintaining hope through all of these generations. It matters to us. It reveals God's character to us. And I, uh, yeah, this, this has been um, something that's been really big for me in the last few years, really. Just understanding that as far as the New Testament authors are concerned, the Old Testament just is the book about Jesus. It just is. And uh, if people say to you, I think you're just reading Jesus into that passage, I don't think he's really there. Well, you can say, actually, the apostles are pretty clear that Jesus is there because he's all over the Old Testament, because it's a book all about him. That is what it's about. If we're seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, we're probably reading the Old Testament right, according to Paul. If we're not seeing Jesus there, we need to look again 
Spurgeon said that to preachers, that when you uh, come to prepare a passage to preach, the first thing you must do is look for Jesus in the passage. And he also said, if Jesus isn't there, make a road to him. And that's a legitimate, and in fact, the only legitimate way to read the Old Testament. To book about Jesus, when we come to it, we ask ourselves, where does this fit into the unfolding story of what God is doing with his people in order to bring Jesus into the world? What is it telling you about Jesus? You can actually see um, Paul doing that in Sydney. I mean, if you look at what he says here in, in, in 3.16, uh, the scripture does not say to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, in one person who is Christ. Now, uh, I've got to be honest with you, grammatically, Paul's argument does not work. It does not work because seed is a collective noun. And it's a collective noun in Greek, and it's a collective noun in Hebrew, and it's a collective noun in English. So, do you understand what I mean by a collective noun? It means that the singular seed can indicate a huge number. In fact, you just wouldn't say seeds in this context. Um, you, you just wouldn't. Uh, it would be like um, talking about offspring. Now, your offspring, you can have many offspring, but you wouldn't say, I have many offsprings, um, unless you have a very tenuous graph of ground. So, so Paul's argument doesn't work grammatically. And I, I think the first few times I read Galatians, I was frankly a little bit embarrassed about that. Um, I, I, I think, oh, Paul, <laughs> what have you done? Now, Paul's an educated man, and he understands Greek and Hebrew grammar. He shows that uh, throughout his letters. He, he knows what he's doing here. But he's saying, look, so convinced am I that the Old Testament is a book about Jesus, that when I see a promise being given to Abraham's descendant, to Abraham's seed, I know that that promise focuses in on Jesus. I know that it does. And when it says that Abraham is going to have descendants so numerous that they'll outnumber the stars of the sky, he says, I know that that promise comes true in Jesus. And that we as Christians, who are now Abraham's children, his descendants, are only his descendants because of this one seed and because we are in this one seed, Jesus Christ. I didn't plan to say anything about that, but um, good. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, there were divergence on uh, the joy of grammar. Um, <laughs> more briefly, uh, this has implications for the way we view Israel and the church and the relationship of the Jewish people to the church. We really need to understand our roots in Israel. And I think as, as Christians in the West, 2,000 years of Christian history has completely cut us off from the fact that according to the New Testament, we are Israel. We are Israel. Paul never at any point says um, the church has replaced Israel as the family of God. He also never says the church and Israel are like God's two families who just kind of don't get on at the moment. He says the family of God is and always has been the people of Israel and you Gentiles who are coming to the church have been brought into Israel. You've been brought in. So you are now children of Abraham. You do now belong because of Jesus and because the mark of who belongs to God's people always was whether they had faith in Jesus. 
whether it was faith in Jesus from an Old Testament perspective looking forward to him, or faith in Jesus from a New Testament perspective looking back. We, we really need to get that. We need to get it because it makes the Old Testament relevant to us, as I've already mumbled on about at some length. But we need to get it as well because throughout the New Testament, there's a massive concern for the Jewish people and a confidence, particularly in, in the Book of Romans, uh, that God is going to gather numerous ethnic Jews into his church uh, before the end of the world. And that that is going to happen. And that actually, the incoming of the Jews is going to be the thing that brings the fullness of redemption and salvation to the world. Now, I think we don't like that, okay? We don't like it because we don't like the idea that God has a chosen people. It doesn't fit well with our kind of Western standards of fairness. God should, um, you know, choose all the peoples equally. And in one sense, we love the fact that the New Testament throws open doors to all nations and says, everybody welcome. But we mustn't forget, the Bible again and again says, you have been grafted into Israel. You have been brought in to Israel. You are the real Israel now. And you need to show concern for those who frankly should be Israel but are not. The actual physical descendants of Abraham who should be in this building worshipping for the not. We need to get that. We also need to be unembarrassed about saying Israel is the Lord of the church. We shouldn't be Jews. Israel is fulfilled in the church. Um, here are the two more important ones. <clears throat> How we relate to God. And that seems quite important. I hope you would agree. Uh, let me just read 4 1 to 17. <coughs> and again, this is going to be obscure in a couple of seconds. Uh, what I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, we might receive full right sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit of called out our father. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Now this is complicated, but again, it goes back into the Old Testament theory. Paul is saying, throughout the Old Testament, even though Israel, the people of Israel, was God's son, they were God's children, they were like slaves. They were like um, the son who is still a small child, and therefore his father, who in the ancient world, fathers had pretty much nothing to do with their children until they were adults, and because it was beneath them to play with children. Somewhere like that. But he, the, the father had nothing to do with the children. I was joking. <laughs> um, can't say that the father's doing The father would put his children uh, under the control of various household slaves. Uh, there would be the household slave who was teaching, the household slave who made sure he ate, the household slave who was responsible for keeping disciplined, and who was intended to be punished if the child wasn't sufficiently disciplined, so pretty good deal for the child. Um, <laughs> But that was how it works. And uh, I'm always saying that the law was given to Israel, much like one of those slaves. And it looked after Israel, but 
Israel wasn't really acting or relating to the father as a son to a child, uh, to a father. They were relating through slaves, through the law. And therefore they were effectively slaves. They had no control over what they did. Even though, in theory, they owned the whole property, at least after the father's death, they had no control over any of that property. They were nothing. They were slaves. And that was what the law did. But because of Jesus, because Jesus has come, born of a woman, born under the law, we mustn't forget that Jesus was a Jew and kept the law, born under the law, he redeems those who are under the law so that they might receive the full rights of sight. So the point is, something has changed when Jesus has come. Israel is no longer under the law. The real Israel, the fulfilled Israel, the church, by faith in Jesus, is now a full son, relating to God directly as their father, with all the rights of a son. And I keep saying son, that's not a uh, sexist thing, it's just that in the ancient world, daughters got pretty much nothing. Sorry. Um, so this is important. We can now relate to God, we as Gentiles, in the fulfilled Israel, not through the law, not as if we were slaves placed under guardians, but as sons who have direct access to our Father. Because Jesus has direct access to the Father, and he's our elder brother. I think it's quite exciting. You are disinterested. <laughs> and another bit here is this, that because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out Abba, Father. The Spirit who says, in the words of Jesus, Abba, Father, who leaves in the untranslated Aramaic word that Jesus used to talk to His Father. He says, you now have the same Spirit as Jesus had, and use the same language that Jesus used. You relate to the Father, just as Jesus did. And Jesus and the Father were frankly pretty close. This is great news. Uh, finally, it affects the way we relate to each other. Let me just read to you from 3.26. You're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If belonging to God's family is purely a matter of trusting Jesus, then we have to receive everyone who trusts Jesus as just as much a son of God as we are, as a brother and sister. We have to, no matter what other differences there might be between us. And Paul, you know, gives the big differences here. Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. He says none of those things matter. They're all one. You are in family because you trust Jesus. Just note quickly, 4, 8 to 11. This relationship is under threat. When you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God. In other words, the Galatians, when they were not Christians, were idolaters. But now you know God, or rather known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Now, 
But this is, I'm just going to say this because I don't have time to go into it, because it, but it's huge, right? Paul says to these people who were pagan idolaters, you used to be enslaved to these pagan idols, but now, he says, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Now just think about it they don't, they don't want to go back to pagan idolatry. They have no interest in that. They want to start keeping the Jewish law, the law that God gave through Moses on Mount Sinai. And Paul says, why would you go back to those weak and miserable principles? He's saying, if you start keeping the law now, if you start observing the law, if you start saying, I need to keep the law in order to be part of God's family, it's as good as just going back and worshipping idols again. That's not going to get down well within the first century Jews or these new teachers in Galatia. But it is what Paul is saying. If the Galatians start keeping the law, that is backwards and perverse, and is like saying, thanks for making me a full son with all the rights that you've given me, but frankly I would rather be a slave. I would rather be a slave. It's perverse. Let me sum up, because um, I'm well out of time. Um, that's never stopped me from continuing to talk in the past, and it's not going to now. Um, look, there are two dangers here. The first danger is this, that we might seek our identity in something other than Christ. That is the problem for the Galatians. They're unsure of their Christian identity, and they think that getting circumcised, keeping the law, becoming Jews, is going to reinforce that identity and make it really certain that they are the children of God in God's family. That is the danger. We can seek our identity in something other than Christ. Now again, for us, it's not likely to be the law of Moses. But there are a lot of other things that we can use to sort of make ourselves more certain, um, to make ourselves more sure that we really are in God's family. Uh, even things that in themselves are good, as soon as we start to trust them, they become bad. Paul says the solution is that we need to see that only in Jesus we have become children and heirs of God. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. It's important we get this. Sons and heirs. So, sons, i.e. you have complete, full, free access to the Father, the same sort of access that Jesus himself had. Heirs, we have a future hope. We are going to see Jesus face to face and live in his kingdom. If we get that that is what Jesus has done for us, and that we have all of that just by trusting in him, how can we be so insecure as to try to build our identity out of the rubbish that we can construct in our lives? Yes? Danger two, we can start raising barriers against others. Now, we've seen that already in Galatians. Go to Peter, uh, who came to Antioch, and uh, this is in chapter two. Um, Peter comes to Antioch, and uh, blah, 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 blah. There it is, 2.11. And Paul opposes him to his face. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Now, do you see what's going on in Peter's mind? As soon as the identity question starts to be answered any other way than purely by faith in Jesus, as soon as, it, as any other issues come into play, Peter has to separate himself from other people. And we can imagine it in this room. Um, if I say, if I say, to be um, in the family of God, you have to trust.
trust Jesus and be a Southampton supporter. Frankly, I'm disgusted at all of you and I'm leaving. Now that's ridiculous because nobody means that to become a saint. You have to. Yeah, anyway, nobody means that to be in the family of God you have to support Southampton Football Club. But you can see that we might put other things in there, right? To be in the family of God, to be really sure you're in the family of God, you have to trust Jesus and you have to dress a certain way. Or you have to read your Bible this much every day. And as soon as you start to say these things, you start to divide the family of God and raise values. And we do it. I believe that we do it. Not only within ourselves, but we also put values around the church so that people on the outside looking in, if you aren't yet Christians, would they look at us and say, it's clear that to be in the family of God, all you need to do is trust Jesus? Or would they say, it looks like to fit in here and to be accepted amongst these people, I would have to do all kinds of other things as well. I'll leave that as a question for you. The solution is that we need to see that only in Jesus we become children and heirs of God. Only because of him. Everything, everything is about him. If I can um, just leave you thinking that, I know I've, I've walked on for a long time and said all manner of things, which, some of which were interesting and some of which were not at all interesting. The only way to avoid getting the gospel wrong, the only way is to say it is all about Jesus, it is all about what he has done, it is all about who he is. That is what it is all about. It's about what he has done, only his death and resurrection makes us righteous. It's about who he is, because he is the Son of God. We are also the children of God as we trust in him. That's the good news. I think it's exciting, but I think I've talked for so long that you're no longer excited about it, which is a great shame to me. So, um, can you just stand up for a minute whilst um, I pray for us? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you have done everything that is necessary to make us right with you, to make us children of your Father, to bring us into the family of God, to make us brothers and sisters to each other. Praise you for that. And thank you that you don't require anything of us except trust in you. We thank you that you do not raise any conditions in your our membership, but invite us to come. We praise you that as the, as the natural born to be a son of the Father, you take us in as well. Call us your brothers and sisters. We praise you that you have put an end to slavery and given us free access to God. Jesus help us as a church and as individuals to love these truths. Help us over the course of this week to live in that. Your glory and for our good. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. <laughs>